What a blessing to be together. I again want to echo what I said earlier and say thank you for the opportunity to work with you specifically to be here this morning. And I do want to echo what was said earlier by Jerry. If you're visiting today, thank you. Uh, I understand some congregations may be suffering water damage and things like that, but we're grateful you're here. We're grateful to be together. Let's go to our Father in prayer, and then we're going to get right into our lesson this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for blessing us with your Son. Thank you for the fact that you see within us a value that you've instilled within us, nothing that we have earned, but that you have placed within us. And Lord, we're grateful that you want to spend eternity with us. Help us to desire you the way you desire us. Help us to place you as, a, as the premier in our life, not just as another something in our life. And Lord, I pray that you not grow weary of us as we grow in our maturity or grow in our faith to do so. We're grateful for those who have gathered together today to worship you, not only here, but throughout the world. But specifically here, Lord, we pray that you've been well pleased with the offerings that we've rendered to you. Heavenly Father, please help us to realize now as we turn our attention to a study of your word that you are the audience, that no one of us are the audience, and help us to, to actively participate in this avenue of worship. I'm grateful for your word, Lord, and I pray that as the speaker I stay out of your way and that you're glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I don't know how much you know about my past. Um, I've done a lot of things, different things in life. Some are, are, I guess you would say, more teenager-ish kind of jobs. I'm referring to jobs. You're like, yeah, don't tell us everything you've done, right? But the idea is this. There was one time I was a, a, a short order cook at a, a local Tasty Freeze in high school. Uh, I was a door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesman back when Electrolux were not carried at the Lowe's stores and that they were sold door-to-door. I did that uh, the summer after I graduated high school. But I also, in my time, in my early days of working jobs that were not based upon education or really even connections for that amount, I also built... Uh, log cabins. Now, I wasn't the only builder. I, I had a special title at this particular uh, building establishment. It was, and my title was called Gopher. Go for this and go for that, right? That's what I got to do. But the, uh, the builder, he did occasionally let me swing a hammer. He let me drill in a screw and he, he allowed me to learn a lot about the building process. One of the things that I learned though was this, if you're not working together, then you're actually working against one another. Now I want you to envision that this morning where we are going to be collectively a building crew. And I would like for this half to uh, understand that you're a portion of the crew and this half of the room to understand you're another portion of the crew. Now we all have the same instrument this morning. The instrument that we hold in our hands is a hammer. And a hammer has two ends to it. One end is for pounding in, and the other end is typically used to take out. Now here's what we're going to do today. We're going to lay down a floor. And as we lay down a floor in this beautiful log cabin that we're trying to build, this half of the room is going to use what I would call the business end of the hammer. You're going to use the side of the hammer that's going to nail in the nails. This side of the room, you're going to use the recovery side of the hammer. You're going to use the side that pulls out the nail. Now here's the way we're going to do it though, because we want to be the most efficient that we could possibly do it. This side of the room, you're going to get started first. And you're going ahead and you're starting and you're nailing down boards and all of you are kind of, you know, whistling as you work or whatever the song is that you're going by. You've got great unison. I mean, your, your whistling is great, your hammering is great, almost as if it was supposed to be that way. Now you get about a third of the way done with this floor. In this side of the room, you're so eager to get involved using your side of the hammer. And so what you're going to do is you're going to go back to where they started and you're going to start popping out the nails. You're excited to be working. You're excited to be there. You're, you're in unison with your whistling. And as a matter of fact, every time it pops, it all pops at the same time. As they keep working, nailing down the floor, you keep popping, taking off the boards. Now let me ask you a question. We're all working in the same house. 
But how quickly will we finish that floor? Your answer should be, we will never finish that floor. Church, sometimes that's the way it is in congregations. We're all in the same building. We're all using the same instruments. As a matter of fact, we're all pretty zealous for what we're doing. But we're never going to accomplish the task if we continue to do it the way we're doing it. Now, I want you to read with me from the book of Ephesians this morning. If you haven't already opened up to Ephesians chapter 4, I would like for you to do so because I want you to understand this morning that God has a task for His church to accomplish. And that task is actually outlined in the book of Ephesians. And we could actually talk about it in multiple ways. We could go to the great commission of the book of Matthew and we could talk about disciples were always meant to make disciples. And and that would be accurate. But I'd like for you to consider it from this angle this morning as we, we allow the book of Ephesians, as we've tried to do for a good portion of the seminar, to serve as the basis of of what we're talking about and, and coming together, not just physically in a room, but coming together in purpose, coming together in motivation, working cooperatively to the cause not that I believe we should be doing or you believe we should be doing, but that God has outlined within His Word for us to do. So I ask you in the book of Ephesians, what is it the church is supposed to be about? And I'm going to give you two verses. If you're writing them down, we're going to read them. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 and Ephesians chapter 3 verse 21. Now as we get there, I will remind you that we've already talked about how the book of Ephesians could be divided into two sections. We have chapters 1, 2, and 3 and chapters 4, 5, and 6. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 deal with the one new man concept, chapter 2 verse 15 in the sense that God brought Jew and Gentile together and He combined them into one new man through Jesus Christ. But now in chapters 4, 5, and 6, the question lingers, how should the one new man function? How should the one new man live? What is God's ideal for us in our homes? What's God's ideal for us ultimately within the church? And what we find in the middle of those two you find the instruction of what we're supposed to be about. I think that's quite interesting from a leadership perspective. If we don't know what the target is, if we don't know what we're supposed to be about, then we will be running around aimlessly, working like ants, but we don't know what we're supposed to be doing, what we measure our work by, and whether or not we are accomplishing. So we look over in chapter 3. Specifically speaking, let's look at verse 8, and we'll get to verse 10. The Bible reads this way, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, listen, through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Now you got to stop and consider this idea of what he's talking about when he's referring to the mystery. That idea of a mystery, it's not just that he introduced that there in chapter 3. As a matter of fact, you go back to chapter 1 verse 9, the Bible reads this way, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him. You look at chapter 3, verse 3, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief, verse 4. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. That shouldn't surprise us then as he's already introduced the concept of the mystery that in over in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. You turn over to chapter 5, verse 32. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And then over in chapter 6, verse 19, And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery. And then here's where he really defines it. 
of the gospel. So the idea of the church and the mystery that is supposed to be administered is in reference to God's saving work through Jesus Christ. You and I would summarize that in the idea of the gospel. And so the question is, how is the gospel supposed to then make a difference in the work of the church? Well, what he says is that because that mystery is is going to be administered and going to be made known through the church, the idea is you've got to make known, verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. Now he'll say to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, and you may look at that and say, well, Joe, what does that mean? Well, the heavenly places and that reference is not uh, unique either. You'll see that over in chapter 1, verse 20. You'll see it in chapter 2, verse 6. You'll see it in chapter 3, verse 10. But you'll also see it when you look over at chapter 6, dealing with the full armor of God. You'll see it in chapter 6, verse 12. Now some of you may say, Joe, why is it significant to allow the the text to show us what that means? Because when you flush that out, what that means on some occasions is that we're dealing with a warfare that's not of a carnal nature. And so when you start talking about things like the armor of God, the Bible says, for our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now he'll also say in chapter 1, dealing with where our blessings are found, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So some individuals look at that and say, in the heavenly places has got to be referring to eternity or the spiritual aspect of God's creation. And I would say that in context, that is exactly what the book of Ephesians is referring to when it says heavenly places. But I will offer this to you, chapter 3, verse 10, when the Bible says to the rulers and authorities, some scholars will draw a distinction between the rulers as they do the authorities. And they will say, well, is this only talking about those in the spiritual realm? Or is this talking about those in the physical realm, the rulers, and the authorities in the heavenly places, the spiritual? I'm not sure if I stand before you today that I will be able to to argue that case well. I do believe the text tends to lean more towards those of the spiritual nature. But either way that doesn't take away from what this is saying the job of the church is. I want you to envision this. The church, those who have obeyed the gospel, they tell you that the gospel matters. And in telling you that the gospel matters, they live lives as if the gospel doesn't matter. Now you, as an onlooker, would look at individuals such as that and you might draw some conclusions about their belief systems you might draw some conclusions about whether or not they are hypocrites or not. But what you would also probably draw a conclusion of is this. You tell me your God sent His Son to die on the cross for your sins. And that that is the pivotal part of your life that makes all the difference in where you're going to spend eternity and how you're supposed to be living now. But I am seeing that what God says changes people really hasn't changed you. What might you think about my God then? You know, if you're an individual that's already looking upon God and Christianity with suspicion, you might come to some conclusions about the God of Christianity. Oh, we really didn't know what he was talking about. His, his, his conclusions that the blood of His Son is, is really what is needed to change the lives of people, if I'm not seeing that you respect that God and you live that way, then I'm going to reach conclusions about your God. That either number one, He's not powerful, or number two, He's not wise. The Bible says this, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be known. When you consider your life and your mission, I need you to understand that the Scriptures teach that however you live, however you treat one another, whether or not you're really devoted to the cause of Christ, it's not only a reflection upon you. It's a reflection upon your God. 
And it's a reflection on whether or not your God is really wise or if He is foolish. You say, you telling me that I, I, a lowly Christian who's on a journey, that individuals can reach conclusions about my God based upon whether or not that my God says the gospel changes people, whether or not it changes me? And I am telling you that's exactly what this is saying. Only, it's not only saying that potentially to those in this world. I want you to think about those who are not of this world. You and I both know that there is a spiritual realm. If you don't believe that, then you wouldn't be here today unless you're here for the meal. And either way, we're glad you're here. But what I want you to understand is this. There are created beings in the spiritual realm who have known that Jesus came to this earth. And they know that God was going to redeem mankind and His whole plan hinged upon the blood of Jesus. They've heard it prophesied. They heard the prophets of old would speak of it. They longed to see it themselves, but they didn't have the opportunity because there is no redemption for those in the spiritual realm. If they rebel against God, the blood of Jesus doesn't doesn't cleanse them because it's different when your faith is not based upon faith, but it's based upon sight. So what I tell you today is this, whether or not you live as if the gospel means everything to you, It's not just that people in this world will see you possibly as hypocrites. I want you to think about the spiritual realm that knows God exists, knows Jesus is real, knows that that was God's plan to send Him, and they're looking down upon us and they're saying, yeah, God, is He really that smart? Or did He give too much credit to the blood of His Son? You say, is that what that text is saying? That's exactly what that text is saying. You don't only live for you. You live making declaration as to whether or not the revealed wisdom of God really is wise. In that, not you know a bunch, but that you live as changed people. Number two, which really can go hand in hand with this, chapter 3, look down if you will at verse 20. The Bible says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Twofold concept. I'm not going to spend as much time there because it really does summarize what was said before. Your job is to show that God's manifold wisdom wasn't a waste, not a joke. And your job is also to live to bring Him glory. Now that fits very well with what we talked about in Bible class, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Let your light so shine before men in such a way they may see your good works and glorify whom? The Father who is in heaven. You see, the reality is you want to go to heaven. You want to go to heaven, I want to go to heaven, and we want to take as many people there with us as possible. But on our, our, in our stay on this earth, our job is to bring honor and glory to God. Now the question is, how are we going to achieve that? Well, in the book of Ephesians, he reminds them of something, and we address this on Friday night. That is, we've got to start understanding and appreciating what we are in Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are the church of God. We are the household of God. And on multiple occasions, he will draw that out. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 22. He will refer to that, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Over in chapter 5 and verse 24, he brings this out. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. You consider this idea of what is the church. Well, the church is the one that Jesus loves, that Jesus died for, that Jesus nourishes. You say, where do you get that? Well, I offer it to you chapter 5 verse 24, chapter 5 verse 25, chapter 5 verse 27, chapter 5 verse 29, chapter 5 verse 30. We are. The body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 1. We are the household of God. And Jesus didn't just come to the earth because He got bored. He loves you. And Paul reminds us of that. When he says, hey, before we're going to tell you how to live, we've got to remind you who you are. 
And in the middle of that, we want to tell you what you're supposed to be about. What you're supposed to be about is this. Revealing that the manifold wisdom of God, the revealed wisdom of God through the church, that God is not foolish. That when He says the gospel changes people, that it changes people. When He tells you that the gospel not only cleanses the sins, but it gives you a new purpose, it gives you a new identity, then when I see people who say that they have obeyed the gospel, I see the new purpose and I see the new identity. And not just for people in this world, but people in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly places, individuals, created beings that have heard all along that Jesus makes all the difference. And they look down upon us and they say, oh yeah, does Jesus make all the difference? Let me see how those humans are living who say they've obeyed the gospel. You and I make a bold declaration about God. We make a bold declaration about what it is to be in His family. Look, there's there's times that we need to be reminded that we can either bring shame to God or we can bring honor to God. It's kind of like when I went off to college. My parents dropped me off at Texas Christian University uh, my freshman year of college, TCU. They were living in Pennsylvania and they dropped me off. And I'll never forget what my father said. And As a father, I said the same thing when I dropped my son off at college. He said, don't forget whose you are. And of course, at the time, as an 18-year-old kid, I, don't, I, I can't tell you that I understood what all that meant. But here's what I did know growing up in my family. I represented my mother and my father. If we went to a place, as dad is the preacher, and here we're sitting in the audience as preacher's kids, and we're acting crazy, we're not paying attention... And my dad is up talking about how raising your family to love the Lord is one of the most important things you could do. And members are looking at his kids acting crazy. They might actually look at him and say, why don't you what? Practice what you preach. Now the truth of the matter is this. I had my own brain. I still do. My brothers, we have our own brains. And mom and dad were raising boys. They weren't raising perfect humans. I know what it is to grow up in a fishbowl. I did. And I know what it is to have my father, because he did it on multiple occasions, come out of the pulpit and say, excuse me, church, and get right down in our faces and explain what was going to happen when we got home. (laughs) Then he'd get back up in the pulpit and he would say, now, church, let's turn in our Bibles. Right? Now, here's the deal. I understood real quick that I represented my mom and my dad. I carried a last name with me. And in small communities, you understand this perhaps better than in large communities. Your last name could mean the difference between people trusting you or not trusting you. It could mean the difference between a handshake and a lawyer's drawn-up agreement. Because if you ever lose the reputation of your last name in a small community, you've lost a lot. So when my dad said, remember whose you are, I don't think now looking back that that was his main thing. What he wanted me to remember was this, I wear a name that is far more important than my last name. I wear the name of Christ across me. And if in wearing the name of Christ, I act as if that name means nothing, then I have forgotten whose I am. The church... My brothers and sisters, we must never forget whose we are. You are a part of the household of God. You are a part of the family of God. That's not a name that you wear lightly. That is a name that makes all the difference in your life. But you see, that's why as we understand our purpose, we understand what the Apostle Paul points out there in chapter 3. That's why it is so significant if I can go back to the laying down the floor, one side of the hammer versus the other side of the hammer, why this whole discussion is important in chapter 4. It's because if the church is ever going to accomplish what God has set out for us to accomplish, then we've got to be working in unison. We've got to be unified ourselves if we're ever going to relay that the gospel really changes people, and let me introduce you to a group of people that it has changed. I've been in some congregations that if visitors were to come in, I would, I would almost look at it and go, well, I hope brother so-and-so doesn't go up and talk to him. 
I hope sister so-and-so doesn't say this or somebody doesn't say that. And you look at that and go, well, why would that matter? Well, it matters at times because sometimes before you're going to grow in the community, you have to grow internally. Because if a visitor is going to come in and they're going to see what's in here, why would they ever want it? Now, I'm using that metaphorically. Here you would want it, okay? I'm talking about in general. They need to see the people of God being the people of God if they're ever going to want to be with the people of God. And so what does that look like in the book of Ephesians? Well, here's what it looks like. Over in chapter 4, as was read earlier, the Bible says this, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. That's the word beseech. I urge. It's a Greek word, parakaleo, which means listen to this. If you don't hear anything else I say, hear this. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. With all humility, gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now look, you see these highlighted on the screen. But we've got to stop and say, hey, wait just a second. This isn't just about, did we get doctrine right? Unity is based upon doctrine. We're going to get there in a moment. And you would be right to conclude that. But I want you to first see before he ever gets to what are called the seven ones, he deals with traits that the brethren in Ephesus needed to pay attention to. Because I would propose this to you, before there's ever going to be unity, there must be humility. Before there ever is going to be unity, there must be gentleness. Before unity will thrive, there must be patience, there must be tolerance, and there must be diligence. Now what does that mean though? Humility implores a term that was once considered derogatory by many of the Greek culture. They would see it as cowering or groveling, but Christianity elevated the term to a point of being opposite of high-mindedness. If you're going to have unity, you cannot walk around as if you are the most important person in the church. Gentleness, a term used among the Greeks to refer to an animal that has been brought under control. It's never weakness, but it's power under control. It's like a bull in a china shop. That, that's like a china or plates, kids, okay? Not a country. A bull in a china shop, but the bull knows it could break everything, but it chooses not to break everything. That's what it means to be gentle. You have the power to do it, but you choose to stay under control. I would offer to you people who have outbursts of anger, slanderous words, they puff themselves up like they're larger than life. Those are weak people. Because it takes a whole lot more strength to restrain power that you could unleash on people than it does just to unleash it on people. Gentleness is power under control. Patience is long-tempered to hold out long before reacting, not a knee-jerk reaction. You think it, it doesn't mean it needs to come out of your mouth. That's what that means. You say, no, 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 if I think it, it needs to come out. No, no, no. Sometimes you need to think it and swallow it. You don't need to have knee-jerk reactions. That's what it means to be patient. Showing tolerance is not the world's definition of just putting up with whatever that individual believes. Showing tolerance literally means you put up with some things that your brethren do that irritate you. You say, nobody irritates me. Don't worry, you irritate everybody else then, okay? The reality is you're a person. I'm a person. We will irritate people at times. Showing tolerance means this. Well, I don't like that brother so-and-so always does this. I don't like it that sister so-and-so always does this. Well, okay. Don't like it. But here's the deal. Is it sinful? No, I just don't think it's what needs to happen. Is it violating the will of God or is it hindering the spreading of the gospel? No, I don't think it is. Okay, then here's the deal. Then you show tolerance. Well, that's just not fair. Well, I'm sorry. Because showing tolerance, that's how you have unity. It may irritate you. And here's the deal. Sometimes congregations have a lot of squeaky wheels, don't they? Don't shake your head, okay? Sometimes congregations have a lot of squeaky wheels. And I will stand to this day and teach that every squeaky wheel doesn't need oil. Sometimes squeaky wheels need a good swift kick. 
Church discipline is a real thing. And just because brother so-and-so wants it that way doesn't mean brother so-and-so gets it that way. I don't care how old he is and how much he contributes. Now here's what I do know. Until we understand tolerance, not just from one side to the squeaky wheel, but from the squeaky wheel to other people who, agree, who disagree with him, then we're never going to have unity. The last thing he says is this, we must be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Diligence means to make haste. It involves desire plus effort. Christians must continually grow spiritually to the likeness of Christ and His Spirit. Unity is had as we continue to grow together. The bond of peace is what holds it all together. And when disagreeing parties diligently want peace, they will find a way to maintain unity without compromising faith. That is a true statement. When peace is what I will operate within and unity is my goal, then resolve will be found. But if at any point in time, arrogance, puffed upness, selfishness becomes a part of that discussion, then unity will never be held. You say, Joe, I get all these, okay? So you're telling me that if we're going to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish, then we must understand that there's doctrine. We're going to get to that. But before we ever get there, we've got to have humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance and diligence in preserving the unity and the bond of peace. And I would offer to you, that means that there may be some internal work that needs to be done if the floor of the house is ever going to be finished. You say, Joe, I do pretty well at patience. I mean, after all, I, I, I kind of swallow my opinions. That doesn't mean you swallow your opinions. Patience doesn't mean the absence of thought. Patience just means just because you think it doesn't mean you've got to say it. Maybe your issue is humility. Maybe your issue is gentleness because you've been taught whoever screams the loudest wins the argument. Maybe your issue is, Joe, I want unity, but I want unity when people agree with me. I would offer this to you. Unity doesn't mean you always get what you want. You see, I believe that if a congregation desires what God wants, and that remains their number one, then unity is always possible. Because peace is the mode that we operate within. Now, he goes on from there though and he says this, look, if you're going to actually reveal the manifold wisdom of God, in other words, that God really knows what He's talking about, the gospel changes people, you're going to bring honor and glory to God through the church, then you, you can't run away from doctrine. You, you can't push it aside for the sake of relationships. You can't push doctrine aside for the sake of big buildings and big numbers because you know we always equate success with size. If, if that's the situation, Noah was the biggest failure that's ever existed. The reality is God is interested in souls. Hear me say this. He's not interested in big numbers. Big numbers will take care of itself when souls remain the emphasis. But if numbers become the emphasis, instead of souls, you will never have enough numbers. What do you mean? Well, here's what I mean. Some people are not going to like the doctrine that unites people. So when he says in verse 4, there is one body, he didn't say there are multiple bodies. He didn't say there are multiple congregations, there are multiple churches rather. And if you understand the word body to be equivalent to church, chapter 1 verses 22 to 23, what he's saying is this, Jesus was going to build one church. That is not because I wanted it that way. That's not because you wanted it that way. There's one church that Jesus built. And one spirit that goes along with that church. The spirit, some people look and say, well, that's the Holy Spirit. Well, obviously there is one Holy Spirit. There's not multiple Holy Spirits. But others will look at this and say that the Holy Spirit is that which permeates the body of Christ. Your body has a spirit. The church being a body is to have a spirit. A body without a spirit is a dead body. You understand that physically. When the soul, when the spirit leaves the body, the body dies. Well, what happens when a gathering of people who claim to be the body of Christ aren't functioning in such a way that the spirit permeates the body? Well, they're just a dead group of people, spiritually speaking. That's what this text is teaching. 
And not only that, it stops with the Spirit. He says, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. There's only one expectation. And that is that the one new man is going to heaven. That is the hope of the gospel. There's one Lord, verse 5. Christ is the Lord. There are not individual men who lead the church as the Lord. There is one head of the body. There are not many heads of the body. And if at any point in time we forget that, then we are wrong. 1 Peter chapter 5, even within our own fellowship, we need to be reminded of this, that the Apostle Peter admonishes the elders to shepherd the flock among which they were made overseers, but it is referred to as the flock of whom? Somebody tell me. If not, you need to read 1 Peter. The flock of God. Elders are stewards of somebody else's flock. We need to be reminded of that. The Lord is the Lord. We don't have multiple lords. There's one faith referring to the doctrine, not subjective faith, your faith, her faith. There is one faith. That means there's one instruction. There's one baptism. We are under what the Scriptures would allow us to understand in the Christian dispensation. We are under what is referred to commonly as the Christian's baptism. That means that in the Bible, why did people, why were they baptized? Why does the Bible teach that we're to be baptized? And what you'll find is this it's for the forgiveness of sin. That's what the scriptures teach. There is one baptism, and then there's one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. In other words, there is one creator and one sustainer. And I, I know in a number today here, this is not a controversial concept. But when you start making applications to what is taught here in this text, what you find out real quick is this, this all has ramifications. That means, that means it, it, it's significant. If we're going to have unity, these are non-negotiables. And within a body of Christ, you would ask yourself, why would the Holy Spirit, why would the Holy Spirit to people who are already Christians in Ephesus need to drive home through the pen of the Apostle Paul that there are non-negotiables that exist within the body of Christ. And I would offer to you, because we are people, and at times we start wondering if what is a non-negotiable can be negotiated. Why would the Spirit need to lay this down in chapter 4? Why would that even be necessary I mean, after all, they're already Christians. Why does he need to remind them what unifies them? It's because there are going to be a lot of people who tell you that these aren't real, that these don't unify. So I would offer this to you today. If I'm just going with the Scripture, what the Scripture teaches is this. We will never have unity without doctrine. But we will never have unity in doctrine until we examine ourselves internally to make sure we're operating with humility, with gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance, with a desire to preserve the unity in the bond of peace. All of that makes it, if I trace it back, if I trace it back to what we said in the very beginning of this sermon, does the gospel change you or does it not change you? Do you come to the table, the church, as a, a businessman operating with business motives? Or does the gospel change you and now you're operating with God motives? Do you come to the table based upon your past? Or do you come to the table based upon the fact that you are a changed individual because of the blood of Jesus? You see, to say that the gospel changes us is one thing. To show that the gospel changes us is an entirely different different thing. And that's what the Scripture teaches here. That if we're going to come together, that we must understand our mission, take inventory of ourselves, and surround ourselves around the non-negotiables. Now, here's the deal. If we will do that, then you and I both will be blessed. It won't be a matter of, well, what do I have to give up so that they can get what they want? What do they have to give up so I can get what I want? That's the wrong approach to the church. The church is supposed to be fitted together, thus the name, right, of this particular lesson. When you start going down the list, what you'll discover is that God always intended for you to be a blessing to someone else in the church and for them to be a blessing to you. 
And so when I read this, look at verse 11 of chapter 4. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The reason I, 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 I end on this particular scripture is because I want you to understand that when you do things God's way, then you can expect to receive God's blessings. But if you do not do things God's way, then you should not expect God's blessings. In the church, what does that look like? Well, we've already discussed the beginning. So what are the blessings? Well, here's the way that that unfolds. God desires for you to grow in maturity. And if you're going to grow in maturity to the point that you're not tossed to and fro by every trickery of men, by every craftiness that exists, God put in place the idea of you need one another. And in that, the Scriptures make it very clear. That's why He gave some to be apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Not so that we could hire them and they do all the work or that we would have a free pass. But the responsibility is to call up the brethren, to train up the brethren to do the work of service. As a preacher, if I ever believe that the success or failure of a congregation is totally on my shoulders, then I have missed this passage. If I ever assume more responsibility than I am supposed to assume, then I miss this passage. Same with elders. Same with deacons. Same with teachers. All of that is because... No one man is supposed to do it all. We are a unit that works together. So, that's where the concept of fitted together comes from. Chapter 4, verse 16. And what I love about this is, the text doesn't just say that we're fitted and held together by, you know, just by something. It says we're fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. And when we stay together like that, it causes the maturity in our lives that God desires for us. So here's the way that looks. I told you I've done a lot of things, different jobs. Well, one of those, one of those uh, qualities, I guess, that I would say is a good quality that comes out of that that I've learned is that I don't necessarily have a, a big fear of failure when it comes to building things. Now, I've built a lot of things for my family, and I don't know why it is they always include a ton of extra parts, Right? But here's what I know. Whatever I build, it stays together. Whatever. About 99% of the time, okay? About 99% of the time, it'll stay together. But I'm not afraid to fail. There are some men who never build because they're afraid to fail. I'm just a guy who says, okay, I'll just, that didn't work. I learned how not to do it. But here's what I've learned. There was a time in my life where I needed a shed in my backyard. And I needed a shed because we have too much stuff in our garage we still have too much stuff in our garage. Our cars don't park in our garage. And don't look at me judgmentally because some of you don't park your cars in your garages either. We got stuffitis problem, right? So I went to the local hardware store and I picked out a building. Well, what I learned in the parking lot was this. They may have a building out there, but that doesn't mean when you go inside and say, I want to buy that building. You know those buildings don't always come put together? So I picked up six individual boxes that were supposed to become a shed and I brought them to my backyard and I started unpacking them, and it just about all the materials just about covered my entire backyard. That's about how much material is there. And I thought to myself, I can do this. And so what I did is I started putting down cinder block. I leveled out the ground. I put down cinder block. I put together the flooring. That was not a problem. That's pretty easy, right? But then it came to the point of framing out walls and standing up walls. You know what I learned initially? That if you frame out a wall, and then you stand it up and you drill it into the floor, but that's all you do. Guess what happens when a good stiff wind blows? That wall falls down. 
That's why some of you who are builders, you say, Joe, that's why we put braces on the, the walls. And I said, now I know that. Thanks for the message all those years ago. But here's what I did learn. What I learned was this. I didn't just need to frame one wall. I really needed to frame two walls at the same time and stand them both up at the same time. Because what I learned is this, that if you put two walls together, two walls form a joint. And the more joints that are there that are fastened together, the stronger the structure is. And then I learned, well, if I put a third wall up, that even adds more security. And if I put the fourth wall up, that even adds more stability. Then I would, would come in with the roof and I would put the trussles on and then I would put the plywood on it and all of a sudden, the more tied in it is, the stronger the structure. But if I didn't connect the joints, if I didn't have all of it put together, then the wind would just blow it down. I think it is beautiful the way that the Scripture teaches that we need one another. Because you were never designed to be the framed out wall standing up by yourself trying to take on the wind. In the church, you need what other people bring to the table. I need you in my life. I need to know that this congregation is faithful. I need some of you individually who have developed a closer relationship with me because I know you're praying for me and your strength in your own walk gives me encouragement to continue. But see, just like I need you, you need me. You need to know. You need to know that what you're praying for is an evangelist who's traveling across America trying to take the gospel to, to individuals. You need that. It's not that I'm great. It's that God never intended for you to do it alone. Now here's the deal. In the congregational setting, that means this. You may have showed up today to sit in an auditorium with people, but the reality is you need the person who's sitting right beside you. Not just because it would be bad, you know, if one person was only singing. I'm talking about you need them for your own Christian maturity. You need them in your faithful walk. You need to be connected. You say, Joe, I haven't been connected in a church setting in quite some time. And I want you to hear me say this genuinely. I am sorry for you that that is your reality. But I also want you to hear this. That does not have to stay your reality. You may have to take the first step. You may have to be the one that reaches out to build relationships but I want you to know this, that every person you reach out to to build a relationship with, you are blessing their life. And you're blessing your own life. Because that's the way the church is supposed to be. Fitted together by what every joint supplies. This morning, I want to ask you a serious question as we turn our attention to, to the invitation. Are you disconnected from your congregation? I didn't ask, did you show up to worship? Are you disconnected? Are you pouring yourself into other people so that they will be blessed according to what we just read? Or have you been hurt and you just knew that grandma and granddad told me to show up to church so I came to church, but I'm really not invested in people? I need you to hear today. God never intended for you to go this road alone. You need the people in this room. And they need you. So if you choose to remain unengaged, then ultimately at the end of the day, you're not just hurting yourself. You're hurting the church. And if you choose to do so, then what are you really saying about God's wisdom? God didn't know what He was talking about, did He? Oh, He told you the gospel changes people and that the church is wonderful and He purchased the church with the blood of His Son and that Jesus is the head of the church. But you know what? I really don't need to be much a part of that body. Well, let me ask you a question. Physically speaking, if there's a member of a physical body that is not functioning well within the body, what happens to the whole body? It gets sick. Perhaps cancer comes along.
surgeries are required and life is shortened. Disengaged portions of a physical body do not add to the overall well-being of a physical body. Disconnected portions of the spiritual body do the same. This morning's invitation, we obviously want, if you're not a child of God today, we want you to become one. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins so that you could spend eternity with God. You don't have to go spend another day curious or wondering what's going to happen when you die. When you die a faithful member of the Lord's church, when you die in Christ, you only have the hopeful expectation of the eternity that God has promised because God doesn't lie. He keeps His promises. We want you to become a Christian today. We want you to confess Jesus as Lord, repent of your sins and be baptized for the remission of your sins. But I know the majority of the people here are already Christians. So here's the challenge this morning. You've seen it in Scripture. The only question is this. Are you shortchanging the body of Christ? Are you disconnected? And if so, I'm asking you, re-engage today. The church needs you. If half of the body is using the lay-down side of the hammer, and the other half of the body is using the take-up side of the hammer, we will never lay the floor down. It's not going to be until we are all engaged, working in unison, that we will accomplish what God has called us to accomplish. So the only question individually is not, well, I hope brother so-and-so heard that lesson because he really needs to go forward. Well, maybe brother so-and-so does. I hope sister so-and-so was really listening because, you know, 15 years ago, here's what I've learned. You can't control brother so-and-so and you can't control sister so-and-so. All you can do is control your response at this moment. And if you need to re-engage, and we can help you do that, we invite you to come forward as together we stand and as we sing.